If you have a Bible, we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 13, read a few verses there, and then we'll be spending most of our time in 1 Samuel 15, and then later on, we're going to turn to Acts 4, if you can keep all that straight. We're going to start in 1 Samuel 13, as you see on the screen. At the end of the time, we'll make our way into Acts 4. If you want to put a bookmark there, uh, it'll all make sense, I believe. Hopefully, it will when we get there. So we talked about Saul's downfall last week, uh, how even though he, he, him being the king was never God's first or best vision, uh, God didn't want, want, didn't want Israel to have a king, yet they wanted one, so he gave it to them. He permitted them to have a king, and even though it was never his first and best vision for Israel, God was more than willing, and this is such a powerful lesson that we learned last week that you should go back to if you if you missed it uh, that God was more than willing to bless Saul and bless Israel even though they were not in his perfect will and that, if that doesn't tell you the heart of God I don't know what else to really to, to really sell you on it God was more than willing to bless Saul and bless Israel even though they were not in his perfect will God was willing to give them a second chance. God was willing to show them the way forward and make the best of what he deemed an unideal situation. So God was willing to make the best of a situation that he did not think was the best. Uh, yet, right off the bat, it becomes obvious that Saul's aspirations as king were not informed by godly virtues and godly principles. He was unwilling to be corrected or enlightened by the prophet Samuel and by, by, by God's word. You'll recall that when we were introduced to Saul, uh, we were introduced to Saul in a, with a very worldly um, accolades, very worldly characteristics. Remember, he was called a handsome man. He was called a, a wealthy man. Man, a powerful man, a man of great stature in the community, uh, which that should be a red flag to you. And you, you may say, well, what's wrong with being handsome or wealthy or powerful? Uh, but here, here's what it should be a red flag about that. When someone is described, first and foremost, in the Bible or in the world that we live in, when someone is described, first and foremost, uh, by their looks, by their power, by their wealth, and nothing is said about their character, nothing is said about their heart, there's no substance actually to the description. It's all what you see. It's all what is appeals to the senses. When someone is described completely by worldly standards and worldly um, uh, principles, and there's no mention of their spiritual bona fides, that is a signal that that person is not in step with God. You can be wealthy, powerful, and handsome, and, or beautiful, and have, and that, that's great. But if that's all there is to you, there's not much to you. Saul was described as the man who stood above the rest, who had more money, more power, came from a great family. And everybody in the kingdom said, that's the guy we need. Instantly, Israel was on the hook. Saul was to be their king, and they were excited about it because he had the power, he had the looks, he had the name, he had everything you would want in a king. But the one thing he didn't have was a relationship with God and a heart for God. And that showed up very quickly. When he became king, he was obsessed with checking worldly boxes. He came from fame. He came from fortune. He wanted more fame. He wanted more fortune. He wanted to be the greatest king the world had ever known. But we talked last week, and this is something the Bible talks about all over the, all over the pages, front to back. Greatness in man's eyes is not the same as greatness in God's eyes. 
If, if you learn anything from me in my preaching, this is what I really hope is right up at the top of the list. I hope you can quote, not me, but quote the scripture on this. This is why we talk about it a lot. Greatness on the world stage does not equal greatness in the kingdom of God. God's word offers us a pathway to true greatness in the one thing that's always tailored and always coupled to the concept of true greatness in the Bible is humility. Anytime the Bible talks about being great and what it means to be truly great, the word humble is mentioned. Humility is detailed. Wherein God is glorified through our lives where we are not full of pride. We are full of humility and being full of humility means that we live a life that puts God first, others first, and defers our stage to what God wants to do on it. You know, the difference, the difference in a life that glorifies God and a life that glorifies self is pretty simple. And you can contrast them very easily. A life that glorifies God has these three things. It's going to be remembered forever. There's going to be personal fulfillment in the life. And it's going to be a life that accomplishes the greatest good for those around us. If someone is great in the kingdom of God, their life does these three things. Number one, it's going to be remembered forever. That means it's going to make an impact in an eternal uh, uh, scope, in an eternal way. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be remembered. Because the greatness was not of the world, as in it passes away with the world. But the greatness was something that did something for the kingdom of God. Someone that is humble and someone great in the kingdom of God, that is going to be remembered forever. And what really the person experiences is fulfillment that they could not have found otherwise. And the people around that person, the people around a great person in the kingdom of God, they are going to be uh, receiving the greatest possible uh, version of that person and they're going to be impacted for the greatest good. But a life that exalts itself, a life that is selfish It may be full of worldly uh, accolades and accomplishments, but when it comes to the eyes of God, a life that exalts itself will be forgotten immediately. As in when this life is over, that, that legacy is over. Nothing continues. A person, a life that exalts itself, forgotten immediately. It leaves behind a self that was empty and lost, and it leaves the people who knew us worse for wear, worse off. So couldn't be too, too bigger, bigger, a bigger gap between these two kinds of, uh, of people, right? A life that glorified God, a life that exalts itself. These two lifestyles are on display um, in the story of the crucifixion, the story that we know very well. The, uh, two lifestyles on display on those Roman crosses, the life of Jesus and the life of a thief, the thief embodies every one of us outside of Jesus. Uh, the thief embodies every sinner, every person that lives for themselves. The thief is someone who took the spotlight that was meant for God, took the, a life that was given to him for the purposes of God, and stole the spotlight and wasted his life. Consider the two, the two dispositions on the cross. Jesus is completely at peace. Can you imagine Jesus is at peace as he's suffering, not just the wrath of man, but the wrath of God. Jesus is at peace. He lived a God-first, others-first life, driven by humility. He was poor. He was homeless. He was hated. He was persecuted. He was left to die on a cross, abandoned by all of his friends. Jesus was there on the cross, and heaven was bowing in adoration, speechless before this man 
Meanwhile, the thief was squirming and languishing in the shadow of a wasted life, knowing that he had lived for something that was rapidly vanishing before his eyes. And here's, how, here's why this is important when we think about that story. Do you remember, of course you do, you remember the plea that the thief makes to Jesus when he was full of shame, full of regret? Remember the thing that he asked Jesus? Remember me. You know why he's asking that question? Because he's at the end of his life and he's staring eternity head on. And here's what he knows. I've wasted my life and as soon as I close my eyes, my life is going to be forgotten. I have lived for me and all I have to show is me. And me is about to be erased from history. So when that man was on the cross facing hell in the eyes, you know what, he's, what, he, what is most weighing on his shoulders? I am about to be forgotten because I live for me. And when you live for me, when you live for self, there's nothing left when the page is turned. So what was his cry to Jesus? Remember me. Because where you're going and the throne you're going to sit on, no one's ever going to forget you. And maybe in some, in the way it all works in the cosmos, you thinking of me, remembering of me, will send some signal of hope out to my dying soul. But, but of course, we know the story that this man being repentant at heart was saved from that, uh, that, that immediate forgetfulness or that immediate uh, oblivion that he was about to face. And, and of course, he would be with Jesus forever. But, but he knew, though, he knew that apart from Jesus, there was no salvation, no future, no legacy, no importance, no significance. All the treasures of the world, all the treasures of the world, all the fame, all the comfort, all the power, all the beauty, it all seems like the end-all, be-all, but at the very end, it becomes, it becomes apparent and obvious that it's all just temporary. King Saul, like many before in many since, was on a fast track towards oblivion, and God wasn't about to allow Israel to get the idea that this was the dream. And that's why this is so important. When we look at our politicians, we look at our wealthy, our rich, and our powerful, the people that, you know, all the athletes, the people that are on the stage of this world, and we think that's what it means to be great, that's what it means to be powerful, that's what it means to be successful. When we look at those people, and, and again, they're good people in those categories, but when we look at those people and we envy those people, remember what actually matters most and remember what God did to King Saul and what God told King Saul as he was about to lead the entire nation down this dead-end road. God met with Saul early on and, and, of course, through the prophet Samuel. And he warned him of the nightmare he was about to experience because of choosing his own path. And we, we read these verses last week. We'll look at them again. 1 Samuel 13, verse 13. Samuel says to Saul, after seeing how he's already started his kingdom off and how he's been prioritizing himself, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the kingdom would have been established... For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Would have is the key word, uh, the key phrase. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So what is the message that Samuel gives to Saul? You could have been established forever, but now you will be forgotten and you will be replaced. That is the message to every single one of us that 
entertains the idea of living a selfish life. And you say, what, is, what constitutes selfishness? Well, I think it's all relative to all of us. If there's more, you can, we'll talk about this later on in the message. It, it, there's, it, it, you humble, you humble hearts uh, always look for how they can continue to be humble and continue to put God first. And we'll again talk more about that. But Saul was full of pride. And he couldn't imagine giving up an inch let alone uh, any more than that. Uh, he was full of pride. That was his downfall. He was chasing after validation, affirmation, recognition, success. He found nothing but shame. He wouldn't gain anything. He would eventually lose everything. And we left off with this thought last week as we considered God's promises to those who humble themselves as th that we will be lifted up in eternity. Uh, here's the promise that God makes to every one of us that chooses that pathway. If we hide behind the glory and the power of God, he will shine on and share with us for all eternity. If we are content with hiding behind, as in you know, deferring to and pointing to the glory of God, the power of God, if we are content to be second and let God be first, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. If we are content to live a life where God is glorified and God is exalted over ourselves, even if it means that we lose something in the, in, in the process, God promises to you and me that he will shine on us and share with us the radiance and the majesty of his glory forever. I think I'll go with that, that option over anything alternative, right? Saul was only in power for the purpose of pointing to God, directing people to God, glorifying God, yet he used his position to exalt himself and in return he would lose himself. And isn't, isn't this exactly what Jesus taught again and again and again, like in Luke chapter 17, where he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I mean, isn't that the gospel again and again? Don't we read that? That, that self-preservation equals self-destruction? Samuel's rebuke wasn't enough, unfortunately, to give Saul pause or to even cause him to repent. Over in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is going to double down on his approach. He's going to put both feet on the gas as he continues down this destructive road. Samuel is going to tell Saul that he needs to make a preemptive strike against the Amalekites. That's what the story we're about to read is about. Samuel tells Saul, hey, the Amalekites, they're a wicked people. They're an, they're an evil people. They're an, against God and his promises and against Israel. You must make a preemptive strike on these people. They are preparing to attack Israel. And Samuel gives Saul a pretty clear agenda that you are to kill their king and you are to kill their armies and you are to not take any of their spoils for yourself you don't need the world to make you wealthy you have God trust in God you don't need to think hey this is a chance to make myself rich and make myself you don't need that Saul God's going to take care of you you burnt, take it all out destroy it all uh, you don't need to rely on them and what they might bring you now, now here's the thing in the ancient days normally kings would bargain with other kings uh, when a king had the upper hand against a, uh, an opposing army, uh, kings would defeat their armies and they would spare the king if the king promised to uh, reward them uh, greatly or to basically give them the money they had, the wealth they had, the livestock they had. So often kings would wipe everybody out except for the opposing king and his maybe his livestock, his hoard of gold and all this stuff. That They wouldn't destroy everything. They would leave a little bit. Hopefully they would get something out of it. So they were always willing and dealing because the goal of a king was to 
make himself greater. Uh, you, you wanted to scare the opposing army, but you, you might not want to wipe out everything because you thought there was something for you to gain from them. And that, that's just the game of war, uh, the, the way that it always has been. Um, but, but this came down to either obeying God or seeking his own glory. Saul had two options. Obey God and, and don't take this low-hanging fruit of, hey, I'll, I'll, kill, I'll kill the army, but I won't kill the king, and I'll take his riches and his livestock and his gold. That was very low-hanging fruit. Saul should have saw that as temptation and, and avoided it, but he didn't. Uh, he could have chose to obey God, but he rather he chose to seek his own glory, uh, which isn't surprising. Um, so over in 1 Samuel 15, we're going to read kind of how all that, all that goes down. Uh, we'll begin at verse number 9. And read down through verse 16. You've, you've probably heard this story before. Saul and the people spared Agag, that's the king of Amal- Amalek, uh, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. So they destroyed the things that were obviously evil, but they kept the king and they kept the livestock and all of his, uh, all of his good uh, um, um, spoils. Uh, now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I greatly regret that I have set Saul up for king, uh, as king, for I, he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So we, we've, we've read this a, a, a couple times. Samuel is very vexed at this whole situation. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a mountain monument for himself. And he has gone all around, passing by, and gone down to Gilgal. So we see this again and again in, in Saul's story. The writer's always letting us know that Saul is always setting up monuments for himself, blowing the trumpet for himself, singing songs about himself, giving attention to himself. We get the picture, right? Saul is about himself. Um, so Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, verse 13, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So Saul thinks, hey, I've got pulled one but, you know, pulled, pulled a fast one. Samuel's going to say, well, good job. You defeated the armies. Um, but for verse 14, this is a pretty powerful um, uh, response. But Samuel said, what is this bleeding of the sheep or this moaning of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of the auction that I hear? So Saul is professing that he's done everything. And Samuel says, but in the background of your life, there's all this noise that betrays your confession. And Samuel said, I have brought them, Saul said, I have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best sheep, the oxen, the sac- to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. So he interrupts him. Be quiet. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Saul's a little bit scared at this point, but he's probably expecting, uh, 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 honestly. So Samuel says, When you were, when you were little, and your eyes were, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? If we are trying to live a double life, profess that we're serving God, but actually living for ourselves, seeking our own glory. There's going to be something that tells on us. There always is. Verse 14 is a really, I love this verse. Uh, uh, different translations translate the bleeding and the blowing, but the, the, it's just noise. What is, this, what is this noise? What is this moaning in the background of your life, Saul? I mean, you tell me that you're doing this, but I can hear some stuff behind you that just says that that's not true. 
So this is a question that I think we should consider. What sound is in the background of your life? Does it point to God or expose your selfish ambition? Now, sometimes you don't really know somebody by what they say. You know somebody by what you hear around them. What's said about them, what's being said around them. You, you know people by the noise, by the background. You know, in movies, uh, there's, there's usually music that is always in the background of, of certain scenes, right? When someone walks on the screen, there's music that, is, that goes with that person. And sometimes the music is, is uplifting. Sometimes the music is, is ominous. And you can kind of tell early on in a movie um, or in a show whether somebody is a good person or, you know, a villain or a hero because the music kind of tells you how, you know, not only are they, you, you know, the, the bad guys are dressed in black, the good guys, you know, we, we see those things, but the music kind of tells on the person, doesn't it? Samuel says the music in your life, Saul, is not indicative of someone who's living for God. So what is the music? What is the background noise in your life? We can say the right thing, look the right way, but if we're not living right, there will be some noise that will tell on us. And, and Samuel, uh, again, we, we heard him press Saul, uh, you know, that, that God raised you up, made you king, gave you a mission, but you did not obey the voice of the Lord. And in and, and verse 20, he, Saul responds, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've went on this mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep, and the oxen, the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Saul is trying to be very spiritual. You know, and we don't know if he actually intended on doing this. I really doubt it. I really doubt it. Uh, but, but he says that's what he wanted to do. And, it, you know, when somebody presses you, and, and we're, we're prone to lie when people are trying to expose what we were doing for the wrong reasons. Saul says, oh, I, you know, yeah, I spared the king. And, you know, hey, I've got my reasons. But, hey, we were, we were going we to sacrifice all this stuff to God. And, and Samuel can see right through that. But Samuel says, okay, I hear you, I hear you. You wanted to sacrifice this to God, but let me, let me tell you what I think about that. Verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? <laughs> when did you become smarter than God? When did you become wiser than God so that you told God you were going to do something that would honor him when he told you what was going to honor him? He didn't need you to come up with some great plan to do, to do better than he had in mind. He told you to destroy it all. But you, you, oh, you're going to sacrifice it. So everybody looks at you and says, oh, look at King Saul at this, this great and noble sacrifice. Samuel says, that's hogwash. This doesn't do anything for God. God's not impressed by that. Verse 22 continues, Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, to heed than the fat of the rams. As in, God does not want the ram. God, that's not, that's not going to impress God if you burn a bunch of sheep on the altar. What would have impressed God would be if you obeyed him like he told you to. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is the iniquity and adultery because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Now, notice that stubbornness is like adultery. Stubbornness means, hey, I'm doing it my way, not your way. And you know what that is? That's I'm worshiping me, not God. Adultery. I'm worshiping something besides God. I'm worshiping my will over God's will. Okay, so let's talk about this. Obedience is better than sacrifice. There's a lot of sacrificing in the Bible, and God commands us to sacrifice and give. So let's talk about what, what, what does this mean, and why does it sound a little bit uh, different than what we're used to. 
Anyone can put on a show of worship and sacrifice. Anybody can present this image of devotion. But the proof is how we live our lives, what we do with our lives. This is why you'll hear God in the Old Testament telling the Jews every once in a while, y'all just need to quit going to church. No, they didn't go to church. They went to the temple, but y'all get the point. In Isaiah, this is what God tells the Jews. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon and Sabbath and all your convocations, I cannot endure you're, you're the iniquity of your solemn assembly. God says, I'm getting tired of seeing y'all show up to, to, to worship every week. You say, well, I, think we're, I thought we are supposed to do that. You are supposed to do that. But God says, y'all are just doing that as if that's impressive. Micah, Isaiah's, uh, one of Isaiah's protégés, Micah got more to the point. Micah chapter uh, 6. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 uh, rivers of oil? Next verse. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. What does God want? He doesn't want all the rams and all the oil spread on the altar. He wants you to do what he's called you to do. Pretty simple, right? Now, there are people who don't go to church who will cite the church's hypocrisy as why they don't go. But let me just expose them real quickly. Uh, they don't do what they're supposed to do either. Right, when people say, well, I don't go to church because they're hypocrites that go there. Well, of course they're hypocrites that go there, but you're, you're just as bad because you're not going and you're not doing. So, hey, that's not an excuse, right? You shouldn't be a hypocrite if you're here, but if you're not here, you're not here and you're not doing what's right. So that doesn't make it any better, right? To, you know, to, just to make it very clear. Nobody is better because of, nobody's better from people pointing the finger either way. But here's the thing. Should Christians behave like Christians? Yes. But the point isn't that all that we do is in vain. It's that we're called to be the complete package. Isaiah, again, the Lord says, because this people draws near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are from me. God's not saying to not sing and not praise and not offer sacrifice. He's saying, but I want your heart to be right too. Our hearts should be right. Our lips should, be, should make noise about the Lord and get people's attention. But if we make noise that isn't backed up by our hearts, we're just a bad example. As for Saul, uh, it all comes crumbling down. It all comes crumbling down and the Lord rejects him as king over Israel. Saul admits that he's messed up, but it's too late. Saul was working so hard to build a kingdom for himself, but God made it clear that his castle was made out of sand. It was built on sinking sand. You know, if we get comfortable in our lives, we can make a big scene about what we've given up for God and what we've given to God. All the while, we've sort of gotten control of our kingdoms and everything's in place as we want it to be. Um, and Saul thought, God is going to be impressed when I bring him this stuff and I'm going to offer a few things and I keep a few things for myself. And I don't know what I'm going to do with this king over here. We'll figure that out later. Uh, but, but God's going to be impressed. But here's where Saul went wrong. Saul had such an inflated ego and he was always so much about himself. Saul was convinced that, that he had to impress God and that God was going to be impressed by what he gave. But, but I think we know this, but it needs to be said. God is never impressed by what we've given up when we still live for ourselves. Can we just say that? God is never impressed by what we've been... Oh, you can say it with me if you want to. God is never impressed. God is not impressed by what we've given up when we still live for ourselves. That's important. Now, should you give up stuff? Yeah, we'll get to that. But if we're just giving up what's easy to give up, what was Saul going to give up? Stuff that he didn't even have before the war. How easy is that? 
Well, what's he going to give up? Oh, I just got the spoils from this battle that I didn't even fight in, but my soldiers died getting me. That, he wasn't gonna, God is not impressed by that. When you're still living for you. God is only glorified when we give him everything, obedience being most important. If we want to honor God, we'll put him first and obey him always. If we want to honor God, we'll put him first and obey him always. We won't try to impress him with our own works. We will focus on being faithful and do what he's called us to do. It's easy to deflect God's call on our lives by waving our hands and making a big deal about, what the, about the crumbs that we've given him. People, this is, a, I don't want to go on a rant, but people who, anybody that wants to make a big, big deal about what they've given to God, I mean, what in the world could we ever give to God that matches what he's given to us? I don't care if you are a billionaire who's given billions of dollars to God. What is that? You think God's impressed by that? Jesus died for you. He bled for you. Is there anything that we can give God that God's going to say, wow, I'm impressed? No. We are not doing God any favors by surrendering. He's doing us the favor by saving. When we surrender to God, we're not doing God a favor. No, we're doing God, we're doing what we should do. Does that make sense? God's not saying, oh, wow, you gave up something. No, he's saying, well, you should have done that. Of course you should surrender. Now, let's be, let's be very clear about something as we wrap up. Does obedience involve sacrifice? Absolutely. But the sacrifice isn't about showing off. It's about following through. Does that make sense? Does obedience involve sacrifice? Yes, it requires it. But what Saul was doing was showing off, not obeying. Saul wanted to keep the best to the plunder and offer a little to God as if he was appearing holy and spiritual. God could see through it. God sees our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows our intentions. Saul was in the position when he could, have, when he could sacrifice more than anybody else and look very holy, but when it came to obeying God, he was lacking. And if you've heard of this before, it's because this is what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, which is, they gave a tenth of everything, not just their money, but of their produce and all their, 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 from their garden. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So this is not a message, hey, don't give. Of course you should. Jesus says you should. But if that's all you do, if you're just trying to impress God, you're just hurting your, your own self in the long run because you're not doing anything like you should do. Jesus says, make sure you read the yellow. You ought to do both of these things. You ought to do both of these things. Remember, it's the same people that Jesus called out when they were making a big deal about their offerings. They would go to the temple and they would pour out all this gold in the offering plate because it made a lot of noise. Remember how Jesus called them out on that one occasion in Luke 21? He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, but then a poor widow put in two small copper coins or two small mites. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than them all, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So God is not impressed by the zeros. He's impressed by the percentage. You hear that? God is not impressed by the zeros at the end of the number. He's impressed by the percentage. As in what are, how much of our lives are we giving away? 
God knows when we're leaving something on the table. Uh, and it, this is obviously not just about money. It's about obeying God in every area. It's easy for well-off people, for instance, to make a big deal about offering to God, but they have so much more they could be doing. It's easy for uh, us to say, well, I came to church. Uh, I served that one time, but there's always more to do. There's always more to do. So to, to, to wrap up uh, real quickly, flip over to Acts 4. I want to just give you an example. I want to give you a snapshot of what, we sh- what our life should look like. Uh, because, again, it is both obedience and sacrifice. But it's sacrifice out of the overflow of our obedience, our desire to serve the Lord. So if you want to know, hey, what should the local church look like in today's world, Acts 4, Acts 5 really are, is, is the template that we should follow. Um, in Acts 4... The disciples have been arrested. They barely escaped death. You would think somebody would have put, patted Peter and John on the back and said, Hey guys, y'all have sacrificed enough. I mean, nobody's ever going to go to the point that y'all went to. Y'all were arrested. You were let out of prison. You went back and preached again. They beat you up. They left you bruised. They left, they left you wounded. You've limped back here. Let's just take a break. Y'all have obeyed God enough. You've given God more than anybody ever would want to give God. Just take a break. And, and remember, uh, Acts 4.29, this is Peter's prayer. This is Peter's prayer and the aftermath of being beat up, threatened with his life, and let out of prison. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servant that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name of your holy servant Jesus. So, after they've been arrested and let out of prison, almost died, what's Peter's prayer? God, could you just do more through us? Could we, just, could we just have another opportunity to obey you tomorrow? Peter didn't say, oh God, look at what we did for you. Look at how much we gave up. Look, we, we, we gave up our skin. When they, were, when they were flogged, when they were flogged, they would have been beaten within an inch of their life. I mean, their backs would have been scarred until they died. They would have never been able to sit up straight when the Roman cat of nine tails ripped the flesh off their back. They'd given up a lot and they could have bragged, oh God, look at what we've given up for you. But Peter said, Lord, can we give up some more? if it be your will. That's a a crazy prayer in our world, isn't it? They pray for boldness. And and here's what their prayer was. Lord, help us go beyond our limitations. We're striving for your goals. See, that's the difference in a life that is set on self and a life that is set on God. A life that is driven by self, a life driven by self does the bare minimum for God. A life that's driven by self says, hey, how, how much do I got to give? How much do I got to do? I mean, it, you know, is that enough? Phew, that's enough. A life driven by self says, hey, I've been here for an hour. I've been here for, uh, I gave a little bit. I'm, I'm good, right? I'm good for the week. Okay, I'll see you next time. A life driven by self says, hey, what's the bare minimum? A life driven by the glory of God says, what is the maximum potential that I can have in the kingdom of God? Now, I know this might sound crazy and this might be extreme, but, and you may say, Justin, do I have to max it out? I mean, is there not somewhere in between? Uh, here's what I'll say. I'm always going to preach higher and farther because I don't think anybody is going to get to heaven and regret having spent their life on God. That's my, that's my approach. I know sometimes I might, throw, I might throw the ball way out and think, man, that's a lot. You could have not thrown it that far, Justin. You could have just threw it into to the infield and we would have not have to run as far. I'm always going to, for my own self, not just for you, but for all of us, I'm always going to throw the ball as far as I can. You know why? Because when we get to heaven, nobody's going to say, I wish I would have done a little bit more for me. We will absolutely regret the alternative. 
But we're not going to regret what we spent for God, our life that we spent for God. That was the culture of the early church. If you read on down, verses 32 through 37, these are highlighted in my Bible because they're so important. If you read these verses, it talks about how the grace of God was on this church. And you know why it was on this church? Because these people were giving up everything. They were giving their life up. They were selling their homes, selling their land. They were bringing everything to the feet of the disciples saying, what do we need to do to advance the church? Liquidate it, sell it, give it up because we want to make sure that God's first. And you would say, y'all don't have to do that. There's no in the word. The Bible doesn't say that, does it? No, it doesn't, by the way. But there was a spirit of obedience that just made them strive for more. Did you know this? The Old Testament, the Old Testament, there's, there's these, there's these kind of uh, low bars. Well, you know what? 10%, that's enough. One day, that's enough. The New Testament comes along and says, give it all. Give it all. Give it all every day, all day. That's what we read about in Acts. You see the difference? One's about the bare minimum. One's about just getting in. One's about maximizing your potential. There's a story in Acts 5, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, who uh, are struck dead. They're struck dead. They're struck dead because they sell a portion of land because the market's good right then. But they bring a little bit to God. And they were very wealthy, very wealthy. So their little bit was more than everybody else's a lot. Does that make sense? Their little bit was a lot of zeros. And they thought, man, God's going to be impressed by this. And, and I'm not trying to scare you, but maybe I am. God struck them dead. Because God expected more from them. They were making a sacrifice. God says, I expect you to obey me. You see what everybody else is doing? They're giving up everything. So I got to ask you this question. I know Wednesday night, you're already here. You're already doing more than most people, but I don't think that you're going to regret doing even more. This is what I ask myself. What more does God expect from you? What more does God expect from you? You know what more Peter and John gave God in the next chapter, in Acts 5? In Acts 5, we see God doing miracles. Peter's shadow heals somebody. I mean, we can't even explain that. But God has got his hand on these guys because they're obedient. Later on in the chapter, it says they go back to preach. They're arrested again. And then they are beaten again and, are, and, and put on trial. And down in Acts, verse 20, uh, Acts 5, 29, when they ask these guys, hey, why do y'all keep doing this stuff? Why don't y'all just take a break? You've given up a lot. Just take a day off. What does Peter say? We must, we ought to, which is, it means must. We must obey God rather than men. He's not just saying, hey, I'm not going to listen to you telling me, tell me to stop. I'm not going to listen to my gut telling me I've done enough. We must obey God rather than men. Down in verse 40, when they're let, when they're let go, when the council agrees, to let them free. It says, they called the apostles. They beat them again. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. They let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So what more did God expect from the disciples? That's the more. That's the more. And they rejoiced when they got the chance to give it. Compare the difference. King Saul wanted to write his own rules, determine what he should do for God and want God to be impressed by his sacrifice. 
The disciples, they kept giving and serving and sacrificing. It was an overflow of their desire to obey. They just wanted to obey God and they left all the consequences to him. What a way to live and what a way to be remembered. Which one would you rather be? King Saul or Peter, John, these guys that gave up their lives and they had no regrets. King Saul gave up a little bit, but he didn't do anything that made him uncomfortable. And he lost it all. Somewhere in the middle, all of us are, but we should strive to be like those that gave up everything because they gained more than anyone could imagine. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your invitation and call over our lives. Thank you for not, not letting us off the hook. Uh, Lord, it's so easy to get comfortable and get complacent and get at ease. Lord, I pray you would hold us to the fire and show us the way to true fulfillment and true uh, satisfaction in this world, but more than that, in the kingdom to come. Lord, be with us as we think on all this, pray on all this, and help us to obey you no matter what, that we might would honor you with our lives and that we might would give up everything in order to gain your glory and your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.